Let me pray as we come to God's word. Father, as we open up your perfect word, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Amen. We've been going through the great songbook of the Bible the past number of weeks, the Psalms. And I'm guessing that I'm not the only one who instinctively thinks of particular songs in certain situations. Like when the birthday boy walks into the room, what comes to mind? Happy birthday. I'll not go through it all. Um, But we want to show them, don't we, that we're celebrating their life with that song. And there's a number of songs which I think we could do word association with. If I said to you, New Year's Eve, what song comes to mind? Oh, Einstein, exactly. What about the Titanic movie? Is there a more iconic song? We could go on. But there are also those songs which spring to mind in certain situations, and they're personal to us. For example, over the past year, as I faced discouragement, it's been the song, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, which has come to mind. And God has used that to remind me that he is our steadfast hope. In feelings of loneliness or being let down maybe by others, it's been a song called, No One Ever Cares For Me Like Jesus. But my question for you at the beginning here is, what is the song that you sing when you're afraid? When anxiety arises, when you're scared, or when the circumstances around you cause your heart to race, what is the song that you sing? I wanted to see what Google might suggest, and I stumbled across 21 songs to overcome fear and anxiety. Perfect. So I clicked on it, and I found advice there from some of the greatest theologians of our day. Ariana Grande, for example, she says, just keep breathing and breathing and breathing and breathing. And there's honestly not much else in that song. Another one was Mariah Carey. And she says, so when you feel that hope is gone, look inside and be strong. And you'll finally see the truth that a hero lies in you. But it's sad, isn't it? These messages are just hopeless in our fear. Just keep breathing, look inside and be strong. A hero lies in you. I mean, they do sound quite nice, to be fair, but if you're about to lose something that you really care about and that scares you, well, just keep breathing doesn't really offer us a lot of hope or comfort, does it? If we're afraid and anxious about our circumstances, afraid that you might lose your job, afraid because your health is deteriorated, afraid that a loved one is maybe close to death, Well, saying that a hero lies in you doesn't offer any hope or comfort either. And it's because deep down that we know we are weak. And so we need a better song to sing. My hope is that as we work our way through Psalm 27, we'd find it to be such an abundant source of hope and comfort that our instinct is to recite verse 1 whenever we're afraid. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What we're going to do uh, together here is just walk through this hugely comforting portion of of Scripture. And so can I ask you to keep it open as I preach? uh, Because his words are infinitely more important than anything that I'm going to say. And also so you can test if what I'm saying is faithful to what God is teaching us in this part of his word. So before I jump into some of the specifics of the text, I want us to zoom out a little bit and notice a few things. And the first is, who is the main character here? 
I want you to scan your eye through that passage and see who's the main character. I highlight it in bright yellow every time I saw David refer to God, and by the end of it, the page was like a high-vis vest. From verse 1, we see, The Lord is my light. The Lord is the stronghold. Then verse 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord, his temple, he will keep me safe. On and on it goes. Who's the main character here? It's God, isn't it? And then second thing to notice here is the context. So sometimes in the psalm, we get a bit of the backstory from the title. But this one, as you can see, it simply says, of David. So we at least know that it's written by David, but we don't seem to know much else from the title. And so we need to look at the text itself. And so if you look at verses 2 to 3 and verses 11 to 12, what does he tell us is going on here? Well, we see in verse 2 that he has opposition. In verse 3, then, we see that an army are in against him. In verse 11, he's oppressed because, well, there are oppressors. In verse 12, he says false witnesses rise up against him and they breathe out violence. It's not a great situation for him, is it? And we don't know a huge amount by way of specifics. We don't know exactly who these people are or why they're oppressing him. But I think God has authored it that way for good reason. See, we're unlikely to face the same enemies that David faces here. But that doesn't mean that we're without an enemy. In Ephesians 6.12, we're told, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That enemy that Paul talks of, he accuses and he schemes against us. He accuses us saying that our sins have taken us out of the race and that God has abandoned us for it. He schemes against us so that our trust in God might falter and so we become more focused on the people or the circumstances around us than we are of God. And naturally then, as that view is narrowed, we become fearful and anxious. We become fearful of what life might be like without that loved one. Anxious maybe about our job, which just seems a bit out of the air, and we don't know then where our purpose lies. Fearful maybe because our own health has gone in decline. I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we said that these situations weren't scary. And my guess is that as you sit here this morning, you're not without fear or anxiety. If you take a moment to think about your relationships, or your family, or your job, or your health, or any of your current circumstances... There's probably something or someone which causes your heart to become anxious. When we read those questions in verse 1, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? I think we probably all know the Sunday school answer, don't we? But like David, there are a number of legitimate answers that we could give to that question. And so why then can David ask these questions rhetorically? Well, I think it's because in verses 1 to 6, in the midst of all this opposition, when he has every reason to be afraid, he preaches to himself of God's rescue from the enemy. God is our rescuer from the enemy. The NHS has a page of 10 tips to deal with fear and anxiety. And they include things like take time out, breathe through the panic, face your fears, imagine the worst, so on. Now I want you to compare who the main character is in that advice of the NHS to the big picture of Psalm 27. See, the NHS is saying, you can do this, you're strong, you can master your own thoughts. 
But I think Psalm 27 paints a much more realistic picture which says fear is a normal response. It's part of the Christian battle and you need a source outside of yourself. In verse one, if you have a look at it there, we see that God is our source of hope in this rescue. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We could probably honestly spend the next 20 minutes just on this one verse, but because there's plenty of good stuff in the rest of the passage, I'll just highlight a few things of who God is to David here. David's circumstances are dark here, aren't they? There's a very real and present enemy, and yet God is his light. He has this torch which illuminates, which provides clarity, which guides, which dispels the darkness. God is his light, his source of hope. And in David's desperate need of rescue, who does David say God is? He's his salvation. He could try all the self-help he wants, and at the end of it, he would still need a rescuer from that enemy. God is his salvation. And God is also his stronghold. A stronghold is this place of protection, and so he's saying God is his protector from the enemy. Enemy arrows might come thick and fast, but God is his protector. He's his stronghold. Our fears and our anxieties will probably laser light our focus on our circumstances, on the people around us, or maybe even on ourselves. It's our natural instinct, isn't it? But our hope doesn't lie there. It lies in the God who is our rescuer. Secondly, then, we see that God is our source of confidence in this rescue. Have a look there at verse 2. He says, the enemy will surely stumble and fall. In verse 3, then, David says, an army might besiege me, but my heart will not fear. War might break out against me, but even then I will be confident. And what's happened here? Did his circumstances improve? It doesn't really seem to <laughs> be that way, does it? And so why is he confident? It's because he knows when it's God versus the enemy, it's they who will stumble and fall. His God is his confidence. And thirdly, God is our source of delight. Or at least he is David's source of delight. Isn't that an incredible thing for David to say in verse 4? When enemies are all around, surely the temptation is for us to just ask for a quick solution. Just to want the fear to go away as quick as possible. And for us that might be wanting a miraculous healing or provision of a job. Or for the immediate restoration of a relationship. But what is the one thing that David asked for in verse 4? He says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David is teaching us to have a heart which says, Jesus, instead of telling you what to do, I'm going to gaze upon your beauty and your grace in the gospel. The grace that allows me to dwell in your presence and for your spirit to dwell in me. I want to love you more and more for who you are and not for what I can get from you. See, in the gospel we find that the greatest gift is God himself. I want to challenge you this morning. If things aren't going well for you, is it still enough to simply be in his presence? 
I wonder, have you got a high enough view of God's beauty that it excites you to gaze upon it? He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly kind. He is perfectly just. He is perfect in every way. And should that not excite us that as believers we get that? Why then would David ask this as his one thing? Well, if you have a look at verse 5 in the passage there, we see it's because he understands that he is safe and he is secure in God's presence. Verse 5 says, For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. As Romans 8.31 puts it, If God is for us, who can be against us? He is our source of security. Okay, Scott, but what if this rescue isn't for me? What if this is one of those promises which are specific to David? Well, I want to fight for the case that the argument which underpins all of these points finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Now, Scott, where on earth are you getting that? Well, have a look there at verse 6. What is David doing when he is in the presence, God's presence in the tabernacle? He's offering sacrifices, isn't he? See, he knows that to be in God's presence, he needs an atonement for his sin. He needs a sacrifice to atone for his sin. And we know from the New Testament that these sacrifices in the tabernacle were just a pointer to the ultimate and final sacrifice for our sin, who is Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice for sin. And then where did David go for God's presence here? He went to the tabernacle, didn't he? Which again was just a pointer to Jesus. In John chapter 1, he tells us to be in God's presence now isn't associated with a location, but with a person. He says that God became flesh in the person of Jesus and he dwelt among us. Or more literally, he tabernacled among us. In Jesus, we can be rescued from sin. In Jesus, we have victory over the enemy. In Jesus, we can be in the presence of God. He is our hope. He is our confidence. He is our delight. He is our security. He is our great rescuer. And I wonder, do we rely on him for that? Do we rely on him for that? Or instead, do we look within and hope that our circumstances change? whether it's for the first time or for the 200th, would we be people who proclaim, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Now as we move uh, into the last half of this text, what you're going to notice is there is a shift in the tone. In fact, some commentators actually argue that these are two separate psalms, but I think that that argument misses something about the Christian battle. I wonder, have you ever had to convince someone that they're going to be okay in a situation? Maybe you're one of those pushers that gets people to go on roller coasters. I'm one of those people. Like this ride goes a hundred times and there's never a problem. You'll be absolutely fine. You'll love it when you get on it. Or maybe you need to reassure someone that results day is going to be okay. Like you've put the work in, you've nothing to worry about. It's true, isn't it? And you've confidence in those truths as you say them. But the second you get on that roller coaster, is your heart not racing a bit as well? And when it's results day, and I think this is probably especially true for parents, is your anxiety not raised as well? We know what's true, but we also know what we feel. 
And I think that's what we see with David here. See, those truths that we walk through are still very much true. They're worth preaching to ourselves every day. But we'd be very naive to say, well, that's the fear thing sorted then. Because naturally there'll be days when we don't preach those truths to ourselves or we, quite can't, we can't quite connect them to the reality of our lives. And we might be left in a crisis at the end of that. My hope is that in those moments we wouldn't resort back to mustering up our own strength or finding better coping mechanisms, but that instead we would turn to God for help and find that our sonship, our adoption into God's family through Jesus can give us real confidence even in the midst of those fearful times. And we see this in David's prayer to God from verses 7 to 14. But what do we learn in it? Well, first we learn to lean on his acceptance. Isn't that the basis of why we can come to him in prayer? Because we're welcomed in. Look with me then at verses 7 to 9. He says, Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. There are a few amazing truths that David points out to us here. God will hear him and answer him and be merciful for him for two reasons. And one is because Jesus was forsaken so that he wouldn't have to be. Jesus was forsaken so that we would not have to be. And the second here is a little bit less obvious, and you might have missed it. See, God's face shining upon someone or smiling upon them is an expression of his blessing. And David pleads, did you notice that he says, do not hide your face from me. He's pleading for God's smile to be upon him. And the amazing truth is that it is. Some of you will maybe know that I am a Chelsea supporter, Craig especially. And a number of years ago, I met one of the best defenders that I think we've ever had, our captain, John Terry. Me and my brother hung about after one of the games, basically way too keen to meet anyone famous. And who comes out of the hotel but John Terry? And he is genuinely happy to see that fans have waited around for him. And it wouldn't have mattered that day if any passerby had given me a dirty look because I just had John Terry smile at me and thank me for being around. What a difference it makes to have God smile upon us. We know from a smile that we are welcome and what a beautiful truth that is to be welcomed by God, to come to him even in the midst of our fears and our troubles. And then as a measure of the extent of this, he compares it then in verse 10 to the ones we'd expect most to be on our side. Have a look there at verse 10. He says, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. What a comfort that is. And especially, I think, to our Christian, and brothers, Christian brothers and sisters who come from Muslim backgrounds or anyone really who's experienced that abandonment of a parent. In Christ, you are accepted and smiled upon by God. And would we lean on that in our prayers? The second thing, and these last two are much shorter, the second thing we learn from David's prayer is to lean on God's guidance. Our natural response in fear isn't always the right response, sure it's not. We want the quick fix. But David says in verse 11, have a look at it, he says, teach me 
your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Would we trust the goodness and the authority of God's word in these difficult times and learn to submit to its guidance, even if it is as difficult as the call to wait? Finally, then, we learn to lean on his provision. David's moved again from this place of fear to confidence at the end of this psalm in verses 13 and 14. Look at these amazing words of trust. He says, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. If you have ever waited in a queue, you will know that the speed is out of your control. If you've waited on results coming through, you know that the outcome is out of your hands. We control so little of this world we live in, don't we? And so David reminds us of what we can do. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. In the midst of fear, he doesn't tell us that the hero lies in you or just to keep breathing. He doesn't tell us to do some breathing exercises. He sits alongside us and he says, we are powerless. So put your faith and your hope in the Lord. He is our provider and our also gracious saviour. He is our only confidence. I want to encourage you to preach to yourself these truths. That we need not be intimidated or fearful or hopeless, but we ought to wait for the Lord and let our hearts take courage because he is the great rescuer from the enemy. Can I lead us in prayer? God, we pray that you would help us to trust in Jesus to be our rescuer from the enemy. Father, we recognize that each of us have different fears and anxieties, and they might, they might lead us to focus on ourselves or focus on the circumstance or the people around us. But instead, would we look to our true hope, our true confidence, our true delight, our true security, and find that in your son Jesus who died for us on the cross who defeated the enemy and made a way for us to be welcomed into your family. Father, as we experience these fears, would we lean on you? Would we know you that you are the God who accepts, that you invite us into your presence and that you provide us a way which is clear to us, God, that you have written down your word to guide us in this time? We know that our response is not always the right response, and so would you teach us to rely on the authority and the goodness of your word? And Father, would we trust that you are the God who provides? Would we lean not on ourselves, but on you as our great rescuer? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.